And Skanosego Ani Bojo Kwekwe Tansi. Good morning and welcome to Moment of Truth. Welcome to Element FM. And you are listening in Toronto and Ottawa, 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto. You can also download the Radio Player Canada app and be listening anywhere across the country if you have done so. And on your device, type in 95.7 ELMNTFM or 106.5 ELMNTFM. This morning on the show, we have filmmaker Alexandra Lazarowicz. And she has uh, made a film, which I had the pleasure of, of seeing. So first of all, Alexandra, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. And as I was saying to you just before we went on the air that, uh, you know, uh, Alexandra is indigenous. And I said, yeah, because Lazar, which is such a great indigenous name. <laughs> <laughs> Out in the prairies, there's lots of Ukrainian indigenous people. Yeah, so. there, yeah I'm sure there yeah. is. <laughs> so, uh, again, w- so what is your what is your indigenous side? What's that? Uh, I'm Cree and I'm from northern Alberta. I'm actually from the area where we made the film in, in Lesser Slave Lake. That's yeah, yeah. where my family is from. And that's where I grew up. Um, half of the time. So I have a big affinity for that community and, and you know, the Métis community, the Cree community that all live up there. Now, how large of a community is Lesser Slave Lake? How big? Um, Lesser Slave Lake is sort of the region and that's the okay. name of the lake. Yeah. And the lake is actually one of the largest lakes in Alberta. Okay. Um, and it has a lot of indigenous communities that encompass and live around it. Okay. Um, so that's First Nations, Métis communities, um, and just generally people who live in the area who uh, go up there to work. So are there are they reserves or are they just communities? Yep, there are some reserves and there are some settlements nearby. Um, it's a really diverse and amazing community um, and it's uh, has a big part of my heart. A lot of the films that I make are actually about that area. My uh, film from four years ago, Cree Code Talker, was mm. about that area. Mm. And I think I'm just in love with uh, my home province and mm. the beauty of Alberta. And mm. I also think that there's underrepresented stories, especially from indigenous folks in the north. For sure. How does your your Ukrainian side... Uh, how is that blended in? It's interesting. <laughs> yes, it's very interesting. Um, well, I think what's really great uh, about growing up as like a blended person who I'm half Cree and I'm half Ukrainian mm. is that um, I had many opportunities, you know, to learn from my Ukrainian side, to learn about the food, but also to um, my family was farmers from Saskatchewan. Mm. So to also understand sort of that historical part of our family um, and learn how to <laughs> farm efficiently <laughs> yeah. by my baba. Um, but I think, you know, it's it's not that uncommon in northern Alberta for people to be indigenous and Ukrainian, like I said, um, and be welcomed in both communities and, and have ties to both families. It doesn't really surprise me because you, Ukrainian culture is very colorful and, and quite a beautiful culture. Yeah, it's beautiful. And I mean, you know, Ukrainian people came here um, during World War One before to farm the land that is uh, in the prairie provinces. Um, so there is a, you know, a connection between those two, those two people, whether that's talking about colonization and farming and land and stuff like that. But um, it's just a really interesting historical historical thing to discuss um, in Manitoba, in Saskatchewan, and in Alberta. It's unique and specific to those places. Mm. Okay, so let's move on to talk about this film you made for the National Film Board of Canada. It's a short film, five minutes long. It's called Lake. And that says it all, basically. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very interesting short film. Now, this is part of, of five feminist minutes. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there's a, a series that have been brought together for this. Yes. Um, I think it's so the National Film Board used to have a uh, a studio devoted to uh, women making films. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was started in 1974. Um, and it was a really interesting thing because it was the only studio in the entire world that did this. It was offering opportunities for indigenous or, or for female filmmakers to make films. Um, and unfortunately, it got shut down due to bu- budget cuts in mm. the 90s. But I'm really excited that this year, through partnering with Hot Docs and Shane Smith and Michelle from the NFB, that they were able to sort of reinvigorate this mm. and allow, um, you know, four filmmakers from across Canada to make diverse films. Mm. And I think within the series of package of films that's screening on May 1st, um, you can see how the diverse voices are different because all of the films are also very different. And there's it's really great because you also get to revive some of the old um, archival films mm. that were done. Mm -hmm. by the Studio D that are going to be premiering with our films. So it's a really great reflection, I think, on women in the film industry and um, how that's sort of moving forward and what the differences are and actually how it's changing. So it's really exciting to be a part of that. Great. Thanks for sharing that and and talking about us and getting uh, people excited about the possibility of uh, going to see these, these films. But specifically, let's talk about Lake now. It's it's a very interesting film right from the start. Mm-hmm. It's very stark. I mean, you could almost see this being done in front of a green screen. You know, you almost could. You know, just uh, just think of it that way. But it's it's beautiful mm-hmm. in that starkness. It's it's so beautiful, and the characters stand out against the the backdrop that you filmed it against, and 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 the story because they're very little talking, mm-hmm. but the story is very clear and it's very strong. And it's very oh. compelling. Oh, thank you. That makes me so happy that you said that. Um, it'll you, be, can, you can pay me later. No, it'll be the world premiere. <laughs> so it's just really great to to hear that feedback mm. um, because it is also a very specific film. And it's a film that I've wanted to make for the past five years and just never really had the opportunity. So I'm really, really thankful that the NFB and like Cody Savard and David from the Northwest Studios really supported this vision because I think, um, you know, in its style, it's as you said, it's a bit stark. Um, but you're just following two women mm-hmm. doing something that yep. they do every winter. Right. Um, and what's really great about Jamie and Maureen's story is their family has been fishing in this way for nine generations. You know, they may have not had the trucks to go out there and do it. They mm. may have not had the jigger, but in the same way, they're doing a traditional practice just in a modern take. Mm. And I think that's really interesting also at this time in Canada when we're doing a lot of, um, you know, a lot of things are before the Supreme Court in terms of indigenous rights, in terms of indigenous harvesting, who can hunt, who can fish, when they can, when they can't. And I think what's really interesting is just taking a moment of time to watch someone mm. do this work mm. um, and see how it's done. It's mm. also really great because we were out there filming in February. Mm. It was minus 25. Mm. Um, we were in a whiteout. Yeah. And these women made it look so easy. Um, <laughs> and it's it's hard work. Like yeah. we were out there with cameras and filming and it was hard work for us but to see them do this work they make it look so easy and there's something really interesting about that sort of you know a duality of seeing hard work being done but also how easy they make it look especially in such a harsh climate it's very true they you the way it was filmed the way it is is put together is is just like a natural unflowing of, of of events that are taking place but it's against this backdrop that Again, we don't always get to see, as you say, it's a it was a whiteout condition, 
And it's it's fascinating. You know, you know what came to mind? I have to tell you that that as I was watching this, because there is so little speaking in it. Years ago, I went to a CBC a training program, and they brought in this this di- the director. He's a film, uh, and he actually it wasn't film. He was news directed director. And they always used to say, uh, if you go out on and do a story, uh, make sure you get me sound. If you can't get me video, if you can't get me film, you know, a picture, get me sound. And he proceeded to show us a story without any audio whatsoever. And it was a very strong story. We knew exactly what was going on because of the shots he did. Mm-hmm. And I would say that that, in many ways, uh, it, 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 it sort of reflects what you see here. You see this very strong uh, story that is that is uh, brought to you with very little dialogue, um, but it's enjoyable to watch. Uh, you get the point across, and uh, and you're learning something at the same time. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it's it's a, a really well done little little film. Oh, Congratulations! Thank you. thank you so much. I think also within my own practice as an Indigenous filmmaker is I've moved away from educating people about indigenous culture Mm. so making films where people talk and discuss why Mm. things are Mm. important or Mm -hmm. have them explain things on camera i really moved away from that because for me within my own practice um just within indigenous cinema is i really find it's it's not actually my responsibility to educate Mm. non-indigenous people about Mm. indigenous issues i can offer them an entry point into it i can offer them a feeling i can offer them you know, tidbits of things. And I think that's reflective in the films that I'm making now. Um, And it's just something that really, you know, I was at a conference and watched Dwayne Linklater, who's a very famous um, installation artist from Northern Ontario. And he was just talking about how he, you know, it's not his responsibility to divulge everything about himself or his culture to people Mm. in his artwork. And I took away from that conversation something that has really informed my work is that that is also not my responsibility either. Um, I don't have to lay everything bare on the table for people right. to take from from right. me, right. Um, because oftentimes the exchange with with film is um, people go to a film, they feel empathetic or they feel sad, and then they walk away and nobody does anything about mm-hmm. it. Um, and so I think with this film, that's kind of exactly what we've done with this film is we're offering you an experience. And if you want to dig a little bit deeper about Métis rights, there is a judicial court case that is happening right now. And you can easily you know, find that in places if you want to look that up. Mm. Um, but that's just been sort of my flow as like a filmmaker. Well, I think that explains to some degree how you put this together. Uh, in in terms of the storyline and how you and what the images are, and angles you used, it was inter- interesting to see. The one thing I did uh, wonder about is how did they get that underwater shot? I know GoPros and I know you can, but I went, wait a minute, that thing is stationary, looking up. What, how did they do that? Yeah, that's our money shot, and we got we got super lucky with it. And yes, it was a GoPro. <laughs> Um, GoPros are magic, but yeah, it are. was it was so cold, and I had to stick my hand into the Ooh. into the ice fishing hole to yeah, to, yeah. to really get that shot the mm. way we wanted it. Um, but the the elements really fought against us through this entire thing. And I remember I was sitting there thinking it was minus twenty five, and we were all freezing, mm. all of our crew. And I thought, wow, why did I even want to make this film? <laughs> you know, in that moment of hesitation when you're like, it's really cold, and like we had to keep bringing our camera into the vehicle to warm yeah, it up I'm for sure. batteries and yep, stuff like that. Yep, yep. And it was just like one of those things of like, okay, no, no, no. 
you know, when we saw the magic and when the film came back, because we shot on 16 millimeter too. We shot mm. the entire thing in 16 oh, yeah. millimeter other than those GoPro shots. Yeah. Um, when that footage came back, it was like, oh, yeah, that's why we did this. Right. You just can't get that look. Yeah. Um, and you have to work hard. That's, you know, that's filmmaking is yeah. being out on the land. And right. it was a real honor to be with these ladies and for them to have them show and share with us. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it was really magical being out. Um, we had an all indigenous female crew. So all members of our team were indigenous female women. Nice. And we were on the ice with two female women who were just yeah. doing their their work. And that was so magical and and, and just incredible to be a part of. Mm. Uh, so how long were you out there all together doing this? We did two full days. Okay. Yeah, in February. Mm. Um, and uh, it was great, you know, stuck in the middle of a lake, <laughs> having the ice shift underneath you. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was, it was, uh, it's actually pretty funny because I've been on the ice a lot because mm. I'm from that area and mm. our family goes ice fishing. And um, for people who have been on frozen lakes, they know that the ice will shift, shift and make and sounds. Yeah, right. um, but it was hilarious to see some of our crew members who had I'm never sure. been out on ice freeze and panic when the big (laughs) happens yeah yeah for sure um i would say the other shot that really grabbed me was um when one of the women is actually walking away from you and she's just walking down across with the shovel in her hand and it's it's a really beautiful shot you know yeah i mean you know it's really interesting i think when you're making films um with people like jamie is jamie is such an inspiring person and that's the lady who's walking Mm. across and she was uh she's six months pregnant she was Mm. six months pregnant in that shot (laughs) um and she wasn't wearing any winter gear and we kept saying, do you want some of our winter gear? And she was like, no, 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 I'm totally fine. Um, and she just trudged along and it's so great because I actually think you can see her personality mm. a little bit yeah. actually in that shot. I think you can. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it doesn't feel like sort of, it, you know, it's just, it's so interesting to me because that's also what makes the shot so great yeah. too. But that's also what they do. You yeah, know what I mean? Like sure. you walk out yep. to find the sound of this yep. jigger that's popping up to yeah. dig a hole and find out where it is and pull it out. Yep. Um, but I think that I'm with you. That's one of my favorite shots also. So I encourage everyone to uh, try and see uh, this film, Lake, by Alexandra. Now I'm going to get your name wrong. <laughs> Lazarowicz. Lazarowicz. Okay, Alexander Lazarowicz. And I apologize for uh, hesitating there. Uh, it's a it's one of uh, National Film Board's uh, five feminist minutes. You can watch it uh, streaming on NFB platforms. And um, so the you mentioned about these uh, these these women and five five feminist minutes that were before. And it does talk about uh, four films that were inspired from 1999 mm-hmm. uh, from that same episode. And as you heard, this film, uh, Lake, was shot on Lesser Slave Lake in Alberta by Alexandra and her crew. Uh, When did you do this? February. This year? Yes. Oh, wow. Yes, it was very fast. Yeah. But, you know, I think when you have the right team together, anything Mm. can happen. Mm. Um, And it was just, yeah, it was just so great. I just love, I love making films, and I'm really lucky to be in this position that I get to do this, and I get to make films that I want to make. So it's just a real privilege and an honor to be able to tell the stories of people that I know from Mm. up north and from where I'm from, because that's really important to me. So why don't you share with us a little bit about the other projects that you've done or what might be coming up for you? 
Yeah. Um, so I just had a film that won at Sundance. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. Back in January called Fast Horse um, oh, yeah. for CBC Digital yeah, yeah. Docs yeah, yeah. that you can watch uh, online now free on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> That's my plug. Um, so that was a really great opportunity because I was able to, um, you know, historically document Indian Relay at the Calgary Stampede with mm. a bunch of amazing guys from Six Sika Nation, the Blackfoot Nation, just outside of Calgary. And that was an amazing experience. Um, and it in the same vein of Lake um, and 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 uh, Fast Horse is that film was not made to be explain Indian Relay to anybody. It really mm. was to give people the experience mm. of being at mm. or participating in an Indian right. Relay. Um, and I think that also fits into sort of the style of film that I'm making and working towards now. Um, and, you know, doing. But um, at this moment, I don't have a film on the horizon, but I'm just sort of enjoying the ride of Fast Horse and now Lake, and we'll see what happens with this film. Are you drawn to any particular style of, of filmmaking? I don't think I'm a, I'm, I don't think I'm necessarily um, in regards to style. I'm more interested in story and the okay. people and who I'm, I'm you know, yeah. I'm like I said, I'm just not interested in making films explaining people for a white audience. Yes. I'm really interested in making films that indigenous people connect to because I think what's important and I think for a lot of us, a lot of us are working through a lot of trauma mm -hmm. and that's come through yep. in through the films that a lot of people are Absolutely. working on. Um, and for me is like I, that took a toll on me when I was making those films. So I moved away from that um, just personally for myself. But I also think that it's really important that young kids like I made Fast Horse for my nephews and my nieces mm. because I wanted to make a hero out of an indigenous kid, mm. Mm. you know, mm. um, and Cody is going to probably be upset, not indigenous kid, indigenous youth. I really yes. wanted to make a hero yes. because when I was growing up and I'm 33 years old right now. I never saw anybody like that on the mm -hmm. big screen mm -hmm. ever in my entire life. And I know that it's time that we have to start creating those types of films for our youth because the youth are really struggling out there. You know what I mean? We have extremely high suicide rates. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's also it, it's important because it's reflected in our media. If you never, ever get to see yourself as anything more than an old Indian cowboy dressed and, you know, shooting arrows and, you know, in buckskin, it's 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 erasure. And if you're erased from history, if you're erased from 2019, why? Why do you continue to stay and why do you continue to live and why do you continue to thrive? So for me, it really is a reflection of of making films for for people to see themselves now in 2019 and really understand that we're still here and that we're resilient. And just being here right now and living is an act of of, of resurgence and resilience. I believe that you are on to something. And what I mean by that is uh, that you're absolutely correct. I think that if we, we always see ourselves uh, uh, having to explain ourselves uh, in films or in, in situations and uh, not see just a story as you have presented it, uh, it's time to move into that. It's time. It's time to just move on. Uh, no more explanation. Just tell the stories and and let it uh, let it be told as it is, and let people interpret. And if they have more if they have more questions, they can they can dig dig deeper if mm. if they want to, like you said. So, Alexandra, I'd I'd like to uh, just say Nyawa uh, Miigwech for coming in and sharing this with us today and giving us that explanation. Where do we do we know where? The yes, theater? it will be put on nfb.com. Right, where everyone can watch it for free. Yes. Okay. So again, I want to say uh, thanks to Alexander for coming in and sharing uh, her uh, her film with us uh, and talking to us about Lake 
it, it's a, a very endearing uh, film, and I I, uh, I want to say nyawa miigwech once again for coming. Thank in you, dance. thank you for having me, and thanks for allowing us to share. And all the best in the future. Yes, you too. You're back on Moment of Truth and Element FM, and you are listening in Toronto and Ottawa, in Ottawa at 95.7, and in Toronto at 106.5. We welcome you for listening, and I also want to welcome uh, Spencer Mann and also uh, the, the the fellow whose story is being told through the film we're about to discover. You know, lots of films going on right now, of course, with hot dogs happening, so it's sure. it's great that the, that the two of you uh, guys are here to discuss that. And... Um, Thomas, uh, your story is being told through this through this film, and it's an interesting title for this film, of course. Yeah. Life in the City of Dirty Water, and that city is Winnipeg. So, um, yeah, it, it's. Uh, I'd like to know why, first of all, uh, the name, the City of Dirty Water. Yeah, no, I've I've uh, I've been thinking about that for a long time, and. You know, Winnipeg, of course, in Cree, uh, my, my language, it means murky water or mm. muddy water, eh? Because mm-hmm. that's where the Assiniboine River and the Red River meet at the Forks in Winnipeg, and they're mm. both muddy-bottomed rivers. So, um, so you know, it's real funny. A lot of my friends in the environmental movement, they'll post a trailer or something, and they'll say, we got to fight to protect our water. My bro made a movie about water. But it's actually just the name of our city translated, so mm. it's always a, a an inside joke. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's interesting that that it, that it is translated in the way that it is because it does allude to other things mm-hmm. about the city. Yeah, for sure. You might say you might say the underside of the city. You know, the the dirty side of the city and the life that many indigenous people uh, experience or have to live through in Winnipeg. And you point out a number of things uh, about that city. So I now have uh, Clayton's full name, Clayton Thomas Mueller. And uh, uh, so, Clayton, you you have taken this story along with with um, your co-director here with me and uh, and talked about the about life in Winnipeg. Mm-hmm. And as you point out, as many uh, indigenous people will know, which has the largest population of indigenous people in Canada. Yeah. Uh, and as you, re- you also refer to it as the largest urban uh, reserve in in Canada, and you know one of the things that you you mention about that, which I thought was really interesting, and I wouldn't mind exploring because there's always two sides to every story, mm-hmm. and in many cases the indigenous side of the story has not been told yet. Right. And there's an education that is s- sort of starting to happen about that, but when you say that the city, because of the large indigenous population, has the greatest potential. Mm-hmm. I'd like to know what you mean by that. Well, I think it's pretty, you know, I'm a, you know, I uh, I believe in our native ways. And, uh, you know, I believe in spirit. And, um, you know, in our Cree way, they talk about the seventh generation prophecy. Mm-hmm. You know, people have been talking about that since I was just a little boy. Mm. And it talks about a generation of young people that will be born uh, free of the colonial mindset, free of those shackles of the mind of the colonizer. And they'll guide us to a, a good place. You know, they'll guide us out of all this darkness and suffering that we've been facing as a result of colonialism. And... uh you know, for me right now, when I look at Canada and when I look at cities like my hometown of Winnipeg, you know, you know, 55% of our native people are under the age of 35, you know, 
um, or sorry, 75% of our people are under the age of 35, 55% under the age of 25. And so what I see like unfolding real time is literally, uh, uh, you know, and this is the most sophisticated generation of young native people. Mm. They're educated, you know, they have one moccasin on their left foot and an Adidas on their right foot and they're walking into the future. And, you know, these are lawyers, these are doctors, these are broadcasters, you know, these are, you know, amazing people. You know, it's an amazing generation of young Native people growing up right now. And, and you know, and there's a big transference of economic power mm. to that generation as well. Mm-hmm. You know, and the, sick, the second biggest demographic coming into the workforce, aside from Indigenous youth, is uh, uh, migrants, mm-hmm. you know, uh, immigrants. And, you know, so there is a, a powerful, you know, uh, financially empowered, academically empowered, spiritually empowered generation of of brown and black young people coming up in this country right now, and they're going to change the face of the country. And so, you know, life in the city of dirty water is my story, but it's a shared experience that many indigenous peoples who have become urbanized experience, you know, the dynamics, the socioeconomic uh, dynamics in the inner city. Um, And so I wanted to share this story that, you know, with the hopes that other people could talk about maybe the trauma that they went through growing up native in Canada and in, in one of our inner cities, um, you know, and overcome that trauma, actually begin to heal from it, you know? Yeah, I think that, that the trauma you're referring to goes beyond the urban uh, centers and urban lifestyle. Uh, and it does go back even harking to your, your own story about your parents and, and uh, the residential school system and, and the impact that, that has had on so many people. And, um, and, you know, I think there are more stories coming out about this. We've had, a, we had an author in a little while back that uh, continues to uh, roll over in my mind when I hear of these things because it talks about the intergenerational traumas that ex- have been experienced that get passed down, whether you yeah. went to residential school or not. And it just gets passed down through the blood and through the memory, right? And um, the, your reference to, uh, you know, uh, uh, wearing uh, wear Adidas on one, one, one shoe <laughs> and, and, you know, a moccasin on the other, uh, I think when you say that, it reminds me of the two-row wampum, you yeah. know, and how this uh, initial uh, country was kind of set up with that idea that when that two-row wampum was created, you're in your boat, we're in ours. And, uh, you Not know, initially it was supposed to be separate. But, you know, those things get crossed over. And I think many, many, many of us find ourselves living. I hear I hear a lot of people talking about living in two worlds, not mm-hmm. just indigenous people. But, you know, you could pass that along to immigrants. You could pass that along to lots of people that yeah. have a background or some kind of a history that makes them feel like they're walking in two worlds. Mm-hmm. We could even extend that to going into the story that you talk about in, in this film, mm-hmm. uh, Clayton, about about how we need to get people to think about getting back to uh, the natural world and living and experiencing life with living things, you know, getting out on the land. You, know, you show yeah. this in your film about uh, getting there and going on a hunt and, and, and actually, um, you know, taking that animal apart and, mm-hmm. and that respect that you have or, and responsibility of taking a life yeah. uh, and being able to be thankful for that. Yeah, no, definitely. I, uh, you know, I think what Life in the City of Dirty Water attempts to do is it attempts to open up conversations mm-hmm. on a lot of really deep and intimate topics for Indigenous folks, you know. And, you know, in the bigger three-dimensional storytelling universe of, uh, you know, our whole transmedia project, which this documentary at Hot Dogs is yes. a part of, yep. 
um, you know, we explore a lot of themes, um, you know, that really get to the root of, you know, how do we actually overcome, um, you know, the, the, the violence associated with, you know, Indian residential school syndrome, you know, the PTSD that is rampant in our communities mm-hmm. as a result of, you know, the last 150 years of residential school and, you know, all these other things that the, the settler colonial state of Canada did. You know, I think we've got a long way to go, but I think what I was hoping for with this film, you know, as the son of two residential school survivors, um, you know, as a father in the community, you know, uh, you know, an organizer in my community, um, I really wanted to take a good hard look at some of the things that helped me get through the hard times mm-hmm. and share those with, you know, our community uh, with the hopes that maybe they could get that courage to share their own stories as well, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. really be and to do it, you know, not alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, the fact that that you're using film as a way to do this, I, I think, you know, and, and this is something I've been aware of for a while, and I'm glad to hear that you mentioned it as well. It's uh, it, it's a an expansion or uh, moving forward to take a traditional storytelling uh, out to a new medium, but just continue that idea of sharing and telling stories. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> so with that, I'd like to, to get Spencer involved a little bit because you met uh, you met Clayton about six or seven years ago, and that was with Idle No More, I believe, or through something around there. So what drew you to uh, to Clayton? Why did you want to get involved? I think, uh, yeah, at the time I was involved with Idle No More, um, and it was an upsurge of incredible indigenous power mm. um, across these lands, so-called Canada and so-called U.S., even around the world, actually, mm. at that time. And there were a lot of very uh, profoundly powerful indigenous leaders who were coming forward at that time in the movement. Um, the the four uh, sort of founding indigenous women of Idle No More and you know countless others who were doing um, critical organizing for life and death work in their communities. And uh, that collective um, of Idle No More decided to uh, work with Clayton as a campaigner during the summer following the sort of uh, birth of the movement. And it was at that time that I was doing some of the communication support and tech work um, behind the scenes for I Don't Know More. Um, and Clayton and I began to collaborate, although we had kind of crossed paths a little bit here and there before that. And uh, it was through, you know, doing the work of storytelling, um, hmm. I think uh, something that Clayton and I both believe in and is really coming to the fore in a lot of social movement spaces is the 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 battle of the story, the idea that that narratives have a profound impact on our lives um, and that by challenging and sort of uprooting dominant narratives and um, opening up room for a different kind of truth telling, uh, there's a lot of, there's a, a really powerful impact that can have on on the ground reality. And so Clayton and I started working together on a number of movement storytelling projects related to Idle No More uh, as well as the Indigenous Environmental Network and really uh, a number of different communities on the ground. And it uh, all grew from there. Okay, so so we know that uh, Clayton, uh, Clayton is, is from, uh, uh, from the Matthias Colum Cree Nation, or as he calls it, his traditional name, if I can get this right, Pickatawagan. Yeah, We're close enough. Close. Um, how would you say it? Puck the wagon. Puck the Okay, so so uh, whereabouts is that uh, northern? Uh, <clears throat> Puck the wagon is uh, on the border of uh, Saskatchewan in Manitoba. It's on the Churchill River, about the fifty-six parallel. Okay, um, it's uh, it's at about uh, mile ninety-nine on the train line between the Paw Manitoba and mm. Lake Manitoba. Mm. 
And uh, it's a fly-in community. Mm-hmm. There's a train that goes about 10 miles away. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, it's a fishing community. Pagadawagan in our language is the literal act of throwing out the fishnet. Mm. And so, you know, uh, you know, all my brothers back home and my, my late father, you know, they're all, they're all fisher folks. How, how large of a community is it? Uh, it's got about 5,000 members. Oh, yeah? It's a big reserve. Yeah. yeah. So there's about 3,000, I guess, that live in community uh-huh. all winter. Right. Yeah. Good. So, uh, Spencer, if you don't mind, I was leading with that because I'd like to know, to, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? What's your background and, and you know, those things? Sure, yeah. So um, I'm also a, a newcomer to Canada, uh, but from white settler background in the so-called United States. Mm. And I came here when I was 17. I uh, started doing different kinds of community organizing work, mostly in, uh, in Montreal at that time. Mm. And um, and then kind of stuck around and tried to figure out where I could uh, where I could make myself useful and and still trying to figure out how to reconcile uh, my own settler history um, with a lot of the indigenous struggles that are taking place on these lands today. So, uh, how much did you know when you came from the states to to Canada about the indigenous population or about the indigenous issues or about Canada itself? Um, I knew a fair amount uh, from having read and studied it a bit before, um, but nothing compared to spending time with people. I think one of the incredible honors of being able to do this kind of film work is the trust that people afford you um, when they feel that you're making yourself useful and it can advance their work and their struggle. Uh, the kind of trust they place in you for opening up uh, you know, very intimate stories in their lives and sharing that with you. And, uh, you know, I've been behind the camera in tears many times with people moved by the power of their stories. And I think that um, that is just a whole it's, it's feeling a history that is really different. And I feel like that's one of my hopes with life in the city of dirty water, although it's primarily, uh, you know, Clayton has envisioned indigenous communities as the main audience for the story. I think that there's also some really important settler audiences as well. And it's my hope that film particularly, though also the book and other elements of the project, can help people feel this stuff. Because I think it's one thing to know, and it's another thing to feel in your heart and to drive change and action in your life that comes from a place of emotional understanding. You said a couple of interesting words there that I wouldn't mind expanding on. One is you mentioned feel. You also mentioned trust. And uh, in order to get uh, Indigenous people to open up, you do have to have that trust. You do have to show them that you are sincere. And that goes back to, again, and and I think that it's important for non-Indigenous people to understand that uh, that that in most cases, uh, Indigenous people, even if you go to a powwow uh, or, or some social gathering, uh, when you show up, it's not going to be like going to another community event in, a, in an urban center. <laughs> it, you know, the, one, you're an outsider. So right away, the flags go up. And you do have to take that time to get to know, just to say, I'm not just here to exploit. I'm not just here to take uh, a five-minute clip and be gone. Uh, you have to get that trust in, in order to establish that. It, it's, it's vital because of the history. It's, it's that simple. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. You got to eat together. That's very mm-hmm. true. Food, mm-hmm. food plays a big, big, big part of that. Now, feel when you say feel, and I understand exactly what you're saying um, uh, about that, and, and it it is a vital part, I believe, of again telling that story to make sure people feel that because it's like um, some of the other stuff we've we've seen and or or, or I, I read or or just about general knowledge. When you say uh, to someone, 
it, you know, once you, you are aware, once you know, you can't claim ignorance. You, know, you can't go back and say, I don't know anymore. And what are you going to do with that information? Yeah, I think that's true to a certain extent. But I also think that um, maybe in sort of settler colonial society, there's a, a very high value placed on uh, supposed truth and knowledge. Mm -hmm. And I think that in many cases, particularly around storytelling, I feel like emotion is more the sort of currency of storytelling. Yeah, um, and I think that there are a lot of people who do know, who are aware on some level, but are not necessarily feeling that. They are not in relationship with people and they have not maybe taken the time to really allow that you know, deeper into themselves yet. Well, do you think that's because if you're going to affect people at that level, then they have to be, one, open to, to that, right? It, it's hard. It's hard to look at wounds. Yeah. And these are wounds. And uh, on many, many cases, it is on the hands, as you point out, on the, the non-Indigenous, the settler community. Now, uh, the other thing you mentioned is you, you said this, was, this, was, this film was for uh, an Indigenous population? Well, I think that, you know, when I'm in making this film with Spencer, you know, over the last couple of years, for sure a lot of it was about, you know, the whole premise was a, that it's a survival guide for the urbanized indigenous person, mm -hmm. you know, as someone who grew up in an inner city. And, yep. you know, my older brother started the largest native gang in the country, the Manitoba Warriors. And, wow. you know, and I grew up in that kind of environment, mm -hmm. you know, just like a lot of my cousins and mm -hmm. a lot of our native young right. people. Um, and, you know, and, and, and somehow though, you know, here I am today, you know, or working for, you know, global climate organization, fighting big oil, trying to usher in a new economic paradigm that doesn't sacrifice our communities. Mm -hmm. And I got two awesome sons mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, and I made it. And so life in the city of dirty water is like, you know, sharing some of those experiences and kind of how I worked through them, you mm -hmm. know, um, and like I said, all with the hopes that, you know, other other indigenous folks can can open up and share some of their own, you know, let some of that stuff go away, stop mm -hmm. carrying it right. inside. Giving giving them the uh the 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 right or or giving and uh, showing them that, that this it's okay to do this, right? Well native it's, men gotta get comfortable with talking about trauma. No kidding. You know, with talking about, yeah. you know, Indian residential school syndrome yeah. and talking about toxic masculinity and mm -hmm. like how do we actually get to a place where we heal? You know, and I think that that's a big conversation that needs to spread across these lands that they call Canada, you know, and don't get me wrong, though. I think that the whole country could benefit from what life in the city of dirty water has to share. Absolutely. Um, native or not. Mm -hmm. um, but for sure, I was thinking about, you know, our fellow indigenous peoples in producing this project. You know, going back to the other comment you made earlier and we talked about was the, this potential uh, and certainly with with the large indigenous population within Canada, and, and this is not something that's general, that's necessarily new in terms of being talked about, about that potential of using and having that, that population of indigenous people here that could be of benefit to Canada in, as, 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 uh, as um, employees, as, uh, you know, entrepreneurs, uh, and doing so many things to benefit this country. Um, and there was something done a number of years ago to, to discuss this idea of the cost of doing nothing about yeah. this. And so it's not a, but it is something that keeps, it, it doesn't seem yet to have caught on or be in the, in the general population's mind to say, hey, we should be doing more to, to do this. 
even if we look at, as I'm sure you're aware, uh, about the ongoing uh, uh, funding for Indigenous schools, you mm-hmm. know, and how that's at half the percent of the rest of the country. So yeah. what the heck, right? No, for sure. And I mean, the, un- the chronic underfunding of children in care, you know, yeah. by up to two thirds yeah. compared to spending on a non-native kid living in care. Mm-hmm. You know, that's 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 the modern day residential school. Yeah. You know, yeah. and uh, you know, Cindy Blackstock's been fighting that a Absolutely. brave fight you know, on, on, on that and as as many people across the country. And I think that, you know, we've got a lot of big challenges still mm-hmm. today. You well, know? We sure do. But there's a cultural revolution happening in Indian country. You know, when we see that here at Hot Docs with Tasha Hubbard's mm-hmm. film about the Colton Bushy tragedy, yep. you know, opening the film festival, that's a yeah. big deal. It was. And, uh, you we know, congratulations to her. Yeah, yeah, you know, that was really powerful. And that she could experience that and tell that story with her children there. Like it was a, it was a very powerful example that it she sure said. Is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At this time, we have Clayton Thomas Mueller and Spencer Mann. They are the people that put together Life in the City of Dirty Water. And it's basically a look at... Uh, at Clayton's life to some degree and talking about the the things that shaped his life, but also moving on beyond that and getting into the issues, the things that he has gotten into that that he has taken on as as both environmentally and also talking about the issues that are important to many indigenous people, which, you know, it's interesting that 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 Clayton and and Spencer have brought out a a point that maybe we all knew, but maybe it's one of those things that you, you take for granted and you don't necessarily. But but, but until you actually hear it hear it mentioned, um, it it becomes oh yeah right oh yeah, and that is of course about how many and how many of these indigenous uh, communities in the the in Canada are very close to so many of the uh, developed mines or, you know, the other things that are going on for oil and all these other things. And that, of course, brings the, brings the attention to why we hear about so many of the contaminated water or contaminated issues that are going on and why that has even been allowed to happen. When you think about putting something like that next to a community, what does that say? You know, what does that say when you allow that to happen to a community of people and, and you know that this is going to happen? And, the, and in many cases, we hear now about uh, these companies that have been dumping things into the water or, in, you know, into the air, that they have just done this. And uh, only now we're starting to hear about these things. So, Clayton, uh, if you don't mind, what I'd like to ask you about, and I think it was wonderful that you included this, because I think it's something that we don't necessarily, necessarily hear about, but I'm un- wondering also, did you have any questions about sharing the story about the two bears, the story of your sons that were born, and the what you did afterwards with the placentas, right? Because yeah. that is something that I don't think a lot of people know about. And uh, is that something you you thought about? Do I do I want to share this? Is it okay to share? Or how did you how did you approach that? Well, you know, um, quite a few years ago. Um, you know, when I when I first started this project, uh, it came out of a place of of trying to be present with my sons. Mm. I had noticed myself disassociating from them, and menial tasks mm. like homework and playing mm. became very difficult. Mm. And so I talked to my therapist about it, and I said, "You know, what's going on with this?" You know, and and he said, "You know, it's normal for 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 someone who you know whose parents are residential school survivors to you know get triggered by things that mm. remind you of what you went through as a kid." And uh, you know domestic violence or whatever, right? And um, 
and and he said, you know, you're seeing yourself at the at the at your boy's age, you know, in in their faces, and it's bringing back all the memories from your childhood. And I was like, damn, that's some deep stuff. <laughs> and you know, so I, I I made a commitment to to you know tell a story about trauma <laughs> and and overcoming trauma <laughs> and healing from it. You know, and it's an ongoing, lifelong, active process sure. that requires sweat lodges. <laughs> Therapy, exercise, good diet, you know, expression through art, mm-hmm. um, everything, all, mm-hmm. you know. And um, and that's what it, you know, and, and I wanted to be real about that. Mm. So, you know, telling the story about my sons, you know, everything is about them. <laughs> you know, my father was an absentee father, and I got I a chip you. on my shoulder about that. Mm. You know, I think a lot of Native men do. <laughs> and I, you know, I really wanted to make sure that I could leave a beautiful story for my boys, my little bears, you know, and. And I wanted to also share with everybody, you know, the role of man and as far as the birthing process and, you know, burying their placentas up on a mountain and, mm. you know, having a, an offering of food and cloth and tobacco and, uh, you know, and smoking my pipe there. You know, these were very sacred experiences that, mm-hmm. uh, that I think we need to bring back, mm. you know, and these roles and responsibilities that, that, you know, fathers can play. They need to be taught those things again. And so hunting... Mm-hmm. You know, uh, the, the placenta ceremony, you know, there's uh, so many things that we have to bring back uh, to achieve balance in our communities again. Yeah, balance, that's a, it's an, it's an important uh, issue. And I'm, I'm, I appreciate what you're sharing there about the importance of bringing back these these responsibilities, the roles, the teachings, uh, and, and, and how it is multi-issued. Uh, it, it, it has so many things involved. It's not just one thing. There are several things involved with that. So... I really appreciate you you sharing that. Do you want to get into a little bit about your your past? You're growing up in in the urban city. You mentioned something about your brother, mm-hmm. um, but you you were exposed to some some pretty horrific things, I might say. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, you know, I I I, I, uh, I faced a lot of trauma as a child. You know, and I think that you know, like the seventies and the eighties, that was a different time. Mm. <laughs> you know, like I remember biking 10 miles from my house when I was like seven years old and my 12 year old, God, I don't let him walk to Seb alone, <laughs> you know, and it's true. Um, it's true. we live in a different world. Yeah. And so, you know, I went through some things when I was a kid and, uh, and, uh, you know, and I wanted to, I want to make sure that my sons, you know, that they, nah, that none of those things that were normal to me mm. are ever normal to them. Sure. I hear you. <laughs> I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah. I made that same decision when my kids came along because I also had an absentee father. Mm-hmm. Uh, didn't know him at all, like zero. And um, so I made that decision. I'm here for my kids. Yeah. I don't care what else happens, but I'm going to be here for my kids. Yeah. Well, that's that's been, you know, and they've been a part of the project. My sons, you mm. know, they're, they, they've, they've, they've helped shoot film and mm. and they're, they're both on camera as well. And mm. they're in the film and. You know, it was it was a difficult thing to share the pieces of this project with them, and to you know not share some of the more trauma, mm-hmm. you know, intense pieces. Um, that's been a balance. Mm-hmm. Sure, <laughs> they still haven't seen the full movies, so, right? You know, but uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and we're not giving people uh, the full story or the full uh, uh, the, the full uh, ex- uh, the the full story of, of this film here either but we are sharing some of those things about to try and make sure that people go see it and by the way they can go see that today at 3 30 mm-hmm. at the uh, scotia theater here in toronto 
And uh, it's going to be shown in other places uh, coming up over the next couple of days as well as part of the Hot Docs uh, uh, Theater, uh, uh, sorry, Film Festival. And um, that's gonna, one of the other places it can be shown is at the Lightbox 4 Theater on Sunday at 2.30 in the afternoon. Now, uh, you said you had your, your opening here with the Hot Docs. Yeah. How did that go? Did you have a Q&A afterwards? Or? I don't know. How do you think it went, Spencer? Is it, I felt like it was good. <laughs> yeah, it was an incredible experience. <clears throat> I think uh, it's uh, any any kind of project like this, and particularly one that is so intimate and personal, and and you know Clayton opening up a lot of stories in his life that he has not shared publicly before. It's quite a moment to watch that unfolding on a screen and to feel the energy of a theater mm. full of a couple hundred people watching it and taking that in, um, seeing people's you know sort of the the body language and mm. people curling up mm. and tensing and some mm-hmm. of those dramatic and horrific moments that sure. Clay shared and yep. see some of the laughter around some of the yep. beautiful imagery with uh, with Clayton's sons Felix and Jackson, um, and uh, so it was it was a. It was quite a moment. We also we shared the the theater with another uh, film that's screening uh, Sound of Masks. Mm. And we'll be um, screening with that, and so we got to hold the space with that director as well. Um, and I feel like the kinds of questions that we got from some people in the audience were an indication that people are ready to go below the kind of surface level rhetoric. Mm. Um, it's, it's another form of storytelling, but I would say yeah. it's a sort of it's a I think it's a misleading form of storytelling that the federal government. Uh, in you know, in this country is involved in right now, um, where we are supposedly in this area of, era of reconciliation, and I hear a lot of indigenous leaders asking, you know, who is this reconciliation for, mm-hmm. and what does reconciliation really mean in this time? Um, and I think there's a big gap between those words and some of those fluffy, glossy stories uh, that the government likes to share around, like Canada 150 and other things, and the life and death realities in a lot of communities. Yeah. Um, so I think uh, we heard some questions from the audience that were in, that were an indication that there are people who are who are really ready to engage in some of the the messier conversations mm. um, and uh, and to try and lift up some of that truth. You know, you mentioned reconciliation, and and one of the things that come to mind is how many times I have heard some indigenous people say reconciliation is not is not a word I would use because I have nothing to reconcile for. It's, it's the non-Indigenous, it's the settler side that has to reconcile. And it's an interesting, it's a, it's a very interesting uh, word and, and statement to make, uh, that's for sure. So, uh, Clayton, did you have something to add to that? Well, I just wanted to say that, like, I think that, that this reconciliation discourse that we're experiencing right now here in Canada, you know, um, it's a, it's a, it's uh, a <clears throat> one of those cart before the horse things. Mm. Um, you know, there's an economic justice piece here. You know, a, a redistribution of land and wealth in this country that needs to happen mm. um, before we get to that reconciliation mm. place. You know, mm-hmm. um, in the states. You know, in, in, in the in the in the in the you know in the African American movements down there, they call it uh, reparations. Mm. You know, for slavery. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's the word that describes what Canada owes to indigenous peoples, mm. you know, for the mistreatment of the last 150 years, mm. but that's got to come first. Right. And these apologies, otherwise they they remain shallow. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So uh, I'd like to ask uh, Spencer, if you don't mind, uh, what did you learn about Clayton through this process? <clears throat> so many things. I think what strikes me most around sharing this space with Clayton um 
And I, I feel like this is something that is maybe more broadly true for for healing and transformative processes in, in people, um, people who are recovering, recovering from trauma particularly. Um, I think that Clayton started and Clayton and I together started in a place that was really um, there was a lot of uh, of sort of feeling of revenge and, and truth telling and, mm. and, and needing to center in that kind of energy um, as we began telling these stories. And I think that over the course of a couple of years of telling these stories and Clayton putting in a lot of that profoundly hard work that that uh, he was just mentioning in terms of the many ways to come at healing, um, you know, through ceremony and through therapy and all these things. Um, and I think that, that, that the understanding of, of, of healing and power has really, I've seen quite an evolution in that, in mm. Clayton, and I mm. think in how we are telling this story over time as well. And, um, and that's been, I think that's something, again, and the sort of surface level kind of conversations that happen, uh, we were just questioning this whole idea of reconciliation and the cart before the horse. I think healing is another one that is thrown around in a kind of light way. Oh, healing. There's a lot of healing to do. Um, that's a very messy process. Healing is sure a is. very messy process. Yeah. And I think, I, I think that the, the kinds of glimpses, not answers, but the kind of glimpses that Clayton gives in these stories about what some of that messiness actually looks like mm. um, are very important to hear. Good point. I also want to point out something that that Clayton uh, and Spencer both mentioned, uh, and that you see. We don't want to give the impression that this is a this is entirely dark or or just uh, heavy issue stuff. There's there is laughter in this, and there is, and that's got to be part of the story, as in any indigenous story. It's there is laughter. Indigenous people love to laugh. Oh, it's yeah. it's so so. You know, don't get us wrong about this. You need to see this for sure. Uh, <laughs> it is definitely something. And you know, I want to expand on the idea of film. Um, an extension of storytelling. We're getting very short on time now, but um, that whole thing, and I think it's much like music. When you write a song, or you can play a song live, and the people will immediately hear that song. But if you put it on a CD, or if you put it and share that music socially, that now becomes that song speaking on itself. It, it's multiplied. Right. Films do the same thing. They allow you to get that message out in multiple ways and sharing that story on a much bigger yeah. front by sharing that same message to many people at once. And so I think in many ways it's very good. And I hope a lot of people will come to see the film and I wish you all the best of luck with it. And certainly Clayton, I wish you all the best with all the, uh, all the things you're involved with. You're doing some great work. And, and so you. I want to say Nyawa Miigwecha and Winishi for, for doing those things and for standing up and getting those messages out there. We need more people that, uh, that do that. And so, uh, so Miigwecha. Um, I want to say uh, again, miigwech to both of you for coming in. I appreciate that you've taken your time to do this, and uh, I look forward to, uh, to uh, being able to uh, see this in a theater. I hope it gets out there right across the country and beyond. You can see it this afternoon at Scotia Theatre in Toronto at 3.30 p.m. You can also see it on Sunday in Toronto at the Lightbox 4 Theatre at 2.30 in the afternoon. The film is called Life in the City of Dirty Water. It is written, directed... And, uh, and, uh, and shows the story of Clayton Thomas Mueller, and that is co-directed with Spencer Mann. They've both been in our studio this morning, and uh, I want to thank you both again. Thanks for having us. Thank you. I also want to say nyawa, miigwech, wanishi, and thank you to everyone who helps put Moment of Truth together. They include in Ottawa, Jill Kennedy, Aidan Wolf, and Caroline O'Neill. In Toronto, Janet Lamb, Andrew Johnson, Luca Capone, Kathy Zabokin, Bruce Barber, Andrew St. Germain. Nyawa, miigwech, and thanks for listening.
This show was brought to you in part by APTN.